And so for me, the anxiety was uh, avoiding situations and people, but I think the depression was probably more prevalent. And so I would just sometimes cry for no reason at all. I didn't, I couldn't tell you why. I just burst that into tears and I just couldn't control that. And I remember I'd walk down the street and I'd see people and I'd just invent some story in my mind of why they were just suffering so much. And I'd take that on board myself. And um, I just lost an interest in the future. I just sort of thought the world's very bleak and what's the point. And um, I just questioned whether what you know what are we all doing here what why are we even participating in life i don't sort of get it okay life can be crazy you're feeling like you're sinking just trying to find a meaning it's time for better thinking yeah better thinking time to tune in let's go welcome back to this episode of better thinking this is nesh nicolich and today's guest is nick newling He is a mental health advocate coming from a position of being diagnosed with bipolar in his adolescence and someone who's also experienced tragedy and loss of a loved one due to mental health. Something that really jumps out about this story from Nick is what it takes to recover and I think you'll really enjoy how it takes a team, it takes a community, it takes a family, some some sort of togetherness to go out and do this and really a a conversation that our whole community and mental health industry can really understand and learn from. So I think it's something to not only listen to, but also to share to others or to consider for those that know of someone who's going through a difficult time themselves. Enjoy. Nick, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Interesting to talk to you about uh, mental health and the advocacy work that you do. I mean, look, this is a space that so many of us, uh, you know, mental health providers, frontline workers are, are interested in. Most of us who have worked in this space or even people who are going through their own lived experience, uh, you know, go through, we, we, we tend to have this strong desire towards advocacy you know we tell people about it this is my story this is what's been going on um i know in some sense this has become a big part of you know the work that you do and somewhat of a calling for you now uh, can you tell us a little bit about um i suppose how you got into this space um i'll probably ask you about your lived experience as we go along uh, but tell me a little bit about you know who is nick yeah, great. Um, well, thank you for, for that question. It's a good, broad place to start. But I, I think what, what you hit on there is really important about the role of advocacy and particularly lived experience in what we do uh, as people who, who work in this space. Because, I mean, I didn't go to uni. I didn't think I was going to, uh, you know, work in mental health. I ended up working, well, I still work professionally in mental health. I worked at the Black Dog Institute for six years and now I do my own talks throughout schools and workplaces and sort of all over the place. I didn't think that this would lead me into a job. I just sort of thought I, now that I'm a bit better, say sort of in my, when I was in my early twenties, I thought I'm better enough now that I think that maybe sharing my experience can be useful to someone else because when I was going through the worst of it, I didn't really have that. I didn't, I couldn't look 
10 years in the future and see someone who resonate, who I resonated with. And that's sort of what I want to provide to somebody else. And so just bit by bit, it led into a bit of volunteer work um, through the Black Dog Institute. And then eventually uh, a position there opened up uh, actually in positive psychology, weirdly enough, not so much the sort of mental health, mental illness kind of end. Um, and, but all along I had this real desire to, to speak on stage. And so uh, I think one of the few things I actually ended up really liking in school was public speaking and, and drama and all that sort of, uh, I guess what they probably call the bludge subjects, but I thought it was actually really, there's a lot of depth to it. Um, and so I thought if I can find some way to, to utilize that interest and those skills in speaking and being on stage with something that I find really meaningful, which is utilizing what I've learned personally through mental health um, and being unwell and sort of getting better and whatnot. Um, if I can fuse those things together uh, to be a career, then I mean, it sounds like it was some stroke of genius. It was sort of mostly a, a slow evolving accident, but it, it worked out well in the end, I suppose. Why mental health? Why mental health? Because um, it, it, could, have it been, could have been advocacy for many things. Why, why, why mental health for you? Yeah. Well, and it was from a very early age, I liked the idea of, of helping. I think that's sort of one of, one of the values that, that sits quite strongly with me. And mental health was never the plan. It was, I wanted to be a vet. That was sort of most of my childhood and and in my adolescent years and probably even in my early 20s I thought that's what I wanted to be and then where and, and I for a while I was probably going to do that I, I was pretty good at school it came quite naturally to me but then when I became mentally unwell uh, in year seven um, it looked like this as, as the years wore on it looked like that's not likely to happen anymore and so I went from having a scholarship uh, at the school to to dropping out completely in year 11 so in that in that time and after that time there was this real challenge of like well how do I define myself now if so much of our identity seems to come from not just what we do for work but where we choose to spend our, our time and and where we sort of orient ourselves who am I now and what am I now? And I think it was just a bit of a happy accident that these opportunities presented themselves at the same time as I thought in some way I can sort of pivot um, being able to contribute in some way, but also drawing upon something that's very real and personal to me and, and hopefully being able to contribute something from a, a unique point of view. And, and I like to think I've done that in some ways, you know, when, when I first started speaking about this from a, a lived experience sort of advocacy point of view, a lot of the conferences I'd go to didn't really take that part of it very seriously, or it seemed to be a bit more just a bit of a tokenistic ticking of the box. And as the years have gone on, I've seen, at least in Australia here, the whole sector has really shifted to, to genuinely valuing the lived experience point of view. And, and I think we're all better off for it. Um, listening to the people who are really affected directly by the sort of work that, that your audience does. And do you mind if I ask a little bit about that sort of real and personal story? Sure, um, of course. I know, yeah. I know it's something that, uh, you know, as you say, at least in Australia, we, 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 we seem to be leaning more and more on. Um, you know, I am a bit concerned that sometimes the pendulum does swing and it's kind of like unless you've experienced it, 
you can't work in that space or you don't quite know. Um, but uh, at least at, at the current state, you know, keep pushing that pendulum along is not, not a bad thing to go out and say, you know, let's understand, let's appreciate, let's let's listen with genuine, you know, uh, compassion and, and, and uh, inquiry and curiosity to find out more about it. So um, if you don't mind, if I could ask you about, uh, you know, what is this lived, you know, this, this real lived experience and, and um, you know, personal story? Yeah, absolutely. Happy, happy to share. Um, I think actually it's a really good point you made. Maybe I might just touch on that first Please. one before we sort of launch into the personal story. Um, I, so, I so agree with you on that. I think there's different kinds of expertise, isn't there? And I think there's, I think when you've got someone who can be an expert in their own experience, and it might not have the breadth of understanding of mental health or, or what surrounds it in a sort of greater context of you know the kinds of work your audience does or whatever it might, or maybe just sort of the understanding that you might get through, you know, doing a, a course of some sort. Um, it's a very different kind of expertise. And I think that if we were to say, I mean, say for me, for example, I can, you know, I do have the sort of professional experience of, of working at Atlantic Institute, but as far as my own experience, I would never extend beyond where it's appropriate. So if someone were to come to me and have questions about, you know, my opinions and thoughts and things based on my own experience, and that's absolutely fine, but it would be outside of the realm of what's appropriate to sort of advise them on what to do, uh, you know, from a, in a clinical sort of thing. So I think that there's there's a huge role for everyone in different places and i agree i think you you find people who are so knowledgeable and have so much experience as a clinician and they might have never experienced mental illness themselves but i don't see how that takes anything away from them you wouldn't have you know cancer treatment and say the oncologist well you haven't had it so you can't help me <laughs> you know it's they're very very different sort of skills and, and areas of, of expertise but as far as my um as far as my story goes, uh, a lot of it was throughout my teenage years. That seemed to be most of most of where it all happened. And um, I started off as a, a very happy little kid, wonderful family, uh, two older brothers, Ben and Christopher, uh, mum and dad, the names are Jane and Phil. And yeah, just a really wonderful upbringing. The, my parents were always so good to all of us and just did everything they could to make life great for us. And um, we all had our own interests and I was certainly the less sporty one of the family. I was a lot more into reading and like all that cool stuff, you know. <laughs> but my older brothers were sort of a bit more, you know, tough and brave and into sport and whatnot. Um, and yeah, as I said, I, I sort of, I think that the idea of being a vet came from being a bit of a sensitive kid. Um, I was sort of a lot more emotional than most kids my age. And um, I wouldn't sort of pathologize that, but I think there may be at least some sort of personality traits which might have led into things sort of going the way they did in the very early stages. Um, I went to a, a school that provided uh, academic opportunities and yeah, six months into year seven, everything just sort of fell apart. And I think what made that so difficult was that uh, I put everything on my future. I, I put all my, all my, uh, what do you call it? 
I'd placed everything I had on the idea of being a vet and I derived all my self-esteem from being a little academic. And I, I started losing the ability. I think the first noticeable thing was sort of a cognitive decline actually. So I wasn't really able to read as well as I could and I couldn't remember things that had happened just, you know, a day ago. And I'd, I'd, um, I'd really struggled to listen in class, but it was really compounded with this very strong anxiety and, um, and a really strong depression as well. And I didn't understand either of those things. I didn't know what they were. And there's that question of like, how much of this is just puberty and, and growing up and how much of it is a, 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 a diagnosable thing. Um, my parents actually noticed it in me before I noticed it in myself because they'd seen my two older brothers go through it as well and they'd both gotten help. And so for me, the anxiety was uh, avoiding situations and people, but I think the depression was probably more prevalent. And so I would just sometimes cry for no reason at all. I didn't, I couldn't tell you why I just burst that into tears and I just couldn't control that. And I remember I'd walk down the street and I'd see people and I just invent some story in my mind of why they were just suffering so much. And I'd take that on board myself. And um, I just lost an interest in the future. I just sort of thought the world's very bleak and what's the point. And um, I just questioned whether, what, you know, what are we all doing here? What, why are we even participating in life? I don't sort of get it. And sometimes I couldn't really easily function as a human being you know simple things like getting out of bed showering brushing my teeth putting my clothes on I couldn't explain to you why I couldn't do those things and that's one of the hard things is people go well just do it (laughs) you know it's so easy just get up and just brush your teeth why can't you do that why can't you clean your room or whatever and I didn't have a good answer for that but I just knew that I couldn't um my grades started slipping a lot in school which was really concerning. And that was when I couldn't really hide anymore. I I did a pretty good job of hiding from my friends because I felt the social stigma of being mentally unwell was so great. It's just better to try to hide. I thought that would sort of make me less of a man or less of a person. So I just sort of hid it to myself. But um, yeah, when the teachers started noticing, it was sort of, I couldn't really get away from it. And so, I, I did start seeing uh, the local GP and the local counsellor. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, the school school counsellor as well. Um, and I got a medication just, for the. Depression. Let me just step back a couple of uh, yeah, sure, a couple sure. of steps. Where, where do you think? Uh, and obviously, you've had time to reflect you know, as a young person, obviously as, as yourself now. Where do you think that came from? What were the contributors? at that time you know is it obviously yeah. is, is adolescence you know we're talking school pressures is it an identity thing i mean you spoke about some yeah pretty pretty um significant existential questions as a as a little kid <laughs> yeah. um yeah where, where, where no, do you think so are the contributors for you um just kind of reflecting thinking back it's such a hard question to answer, and it's one that I saw was the key to unlock all of it. I thought that I've sort of thought my way into this, 
um, at the time, and maybe for a number of years, I thought it was just I, I've worked myself up into this way of this agitated thinking, and that's what's brought this all about. Um, I think in reality, there's probably very much a genetic component for me, but probably also just the conditions of putting so much pressure on myself uh, in school. And I think just that that was sort of the the catalyst was the the pressure of school that I that I put upon myself and and burning out overworking myself you know working too much at school um but I so think there was definitely a genetic really component to it sorry my yeah apologies. and also a bit of a perfectionist as well I was never quite happy with my output uh and I just sort of really beat myself up a lot over it and so the pressure was really coming from within it wasn't from the school or my family it was really me so I think it was those things combined. My my family life was great. I had nothing to complain about. And perhaps part of the issue was I thought mental illness only really comes about from uh, difficult life circumstances. And I thought I've got a really good family life, so I shouldn't really be complaining about it. And I'm just wasting the counsellor's time if I go seek help. You know, there's, there's other people out there who've got it way worse than me. What have I got to complain about? So... I saw understanding the origin as the... My apologies. You can't imagine how often I hear that. But, you know, I've got nothing to to, to complain about. This this is what's so hard Mm. about mental health, uh, you know, Mm. in in really uh, a very fortunate country. But it doesn't mean that life is easy. Um, And it doesn't mean that everyone's fortunate. And, you know, obviously mental health doesn't discriminate or, or, you know, the way that we feel discriminate uh, but it's interesting that those words resonate you know i hear that you know all too often weekly um at, at mm. least um yeah. which is fascinating to hear that kind of uh, yeah. echo echoed again uh, I, I wouldn't doubt it of course and I, and I carried that with me even after i'd gotten a lot better even into my early 20s and i saw a different counselor to try to deal with some of the stuff of the past uh, I still held that. I still said, uh, I'm wasting your time. And he sort of explained that it's really all relative, you know, and you, he might have a client who he's been seeing for a decade uh, because her dog died and she could just never work her way through that. And so it's not what's happened. It's it's the way that we've responded to it very often is, is what determines whether we think we might actually need or could benefit from some support. So, yeah, it's a really tough one because I had a very, uh, I didn't understand how it all worked for a very long time. So uh, after a while, when I wasn't able to work out the cause of everything, I just thought, I just, I I don't know, try and find another way to get through it. The problem I had, though, was that I had so many different doctors and so many different diagnoses. I started getting these symptoms of psychosis, um, so hallucinations and delusions when I was probably 14. And no one could really say what it was. Uh, I went to an adolescent psychiatric ward um, at the end of year eight and I was there for nine months and I didn't leave any better than when I went in. Um, I'd gained a, I had, well, that's not entirely true. I'd gained a wonderful experience. You were going in and Um, out? Yeah, so I was, they wanted me to be an inpatient. That was the idea. Um, but I I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay in my own bed, you know. So my parents would actually drive. They'd probably spend three hours in the car each day just to 
wake up at the crack of dawn and drive to this place and drop me off and then at the very end of the day drive home again um yeah five days a week for nine months uh so just yeah and I'm, a, I'm a parent now for the first time as of you know 13 and a half weeks ago but who's counting and <laughs> i just think like i wasn't able to fully grasp so at all grasp how much my family did for me to get me well and uh, I mean, I met so many kids in that place who didn't have the same family circumstances that I did. And I think, like, if I couldn't get better for so many years, like, how is someone else going to do it who doesn't have that support of someone to wake them up with the medication in the hand and go, remember, you got to take these or to, you know, go get the script refilled when it runs out or turn up at the the office of the, the counsellor all that sort of stuff that I just couldn't do. Um, yeah, it's it's a wonder how how a lot of people manage in, in even more difficult circumstances that I had. But um, what sort of hallucinations were you having for our for our audience to try and understand to put themselves in a you know fourteen year old's shoes? Well, what was yeah. going on for you? Well, well, it was um, experience. It was mostly auditory. It was um, hearing voices, and it it felt like here's the thing. It was it was hard to diagnose because I didn't have any frame of reference, so I couldn't really explain it very well. So I would talk about it in terms of vo hearing voices, but it wasn't so much hearing with my own ears the way I'd hear your voice in our conversation now. It it felt like it was somewhat like my own voice, but I wasn't actually in control of it. Um, so it well, I wasn't, I wasn't sort of the author of my own thoughts, if that sort of makes sense. So I didn't really have any theories as what, to was it your voice, voice was or was it a different voice? It was at at times it was it was either either or, um, but in each case I couldn't have told you what that voice was going to say next. Um, but it was also. I also have this other thing which is sort of similar but different, which was just this um, uh, this ongoing stream of different random disconnected words that would just flurry through my mind nonstop. Um, and it just became impossible to sort of concentrate or participate with the world when there was just this jumbled up uh, nonsense uh, words everywhere. So... It sort of led me to, to struggle to function. Recog you know. Recognisable words or sort of words that weren't of an English nature? Yeah, they were recognisable English words, but they were just jumbled up with no relationship to each other. They were just all just, I don't know, if you could just randomise a dictionary and just read through all the words, it was just like wow. that. Yeah. So, And then you imagine trying to, because sometimes I'd, I'd sort of semi-respond to it, sort of muttering under my breath. And then, you know, trying to hide that obviously became quite difficult at school. But that's what I loved about being at that ward was that, you know, I didn't, I didn't improve in terms of my conditions, you know, the depression, the anxiety, the psychosis, but I improved greatly in terms of gaining a sense of self and community and not having to be so afraid of what I was going through and not having to hate, myself so much for who I or what I felt I was at that point I, I could I could get rid of a lot of the shame of and a lot of the the self stigma of, of being unwell and so 
by the time I left there, uh, I didn't I didn't want to leave. I just wanted to stay there forever. Um, but obviously, I had to go back to school be, again because it was a yeah. supportive environment. Is that what you mean by yeah, the supportive wasn't there? and yeah, and non-judgmental. It was just just the 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 simple freedom to express myself and just say I'm utterly depressed and I don't want to live anymore and I don't perceive reality the way everyone else does. I don't feel like I exist. I feel like I'm just watching myself on a movie screen kind of thing. So to say that to people who would just go like, oh, yeah, I've experienced that or be willing to, or, or there not be a huge jump in their, their lack of knowledge to get there. I think that's what it was. It was just being around people my own age who got it um, and were just so okay with that. Okay with the feeling. I'm assuming that many of those that you found yourself in that um, psychiatric facility weren't necessarily mm. sharing um, hallucinations, but rather probably sharing similar feelings, like feeling depressed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I did have a few friends in or there both. who had psychosis and then others who had depression and others who had um, you know anxiety and various other situations. But, yeah, it was just a sense that um, it's okay to be yourself in this place and you don't have to hide because so much of the burden of being unwell in my normal school was having to constantly every moment of the day just work out how to counteract the way I come across um, and it's just exhausting just to hide feeling miserable and suicidal and project happiness in a very um, in, in a way that's not authentic it, it's exhausting to have to do that and the, and have the fear of that if that fails if someone sees you know, a, a crack in the the mask, then uh, my my social life's over. You know, it's just such high high pressure, high stakes. Was that um, uh, what you understood from the situation, or is that what others kind of expected of you? Yeah, I think uh, it was. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Thinking back, would it have been different? If I had have been more expressive about it, would it have been different? Would people have sort of been accepting of it? Um, and I think it is hard to say. I do know when I went to my high school reunion and I sort of disclosed for the first time to everyone what had happened, that, you know, those nine, the nine months I was away was actually, uh, it wasn't chronic fatigue and glandular fever like I said I had. It was actually um, being in hospital for mental illness they were very supportive and were very non-judgmental. And many of them had said at the time that they were going through similar things and they also kept to themselves. So, yeah, I think I would have probably found more of a supportive community than I would have been aware of. Um, but then you also wonder, well, would it have actually played out like that at the time? It's hard to really say. Probably some yes, some a, a bit yes, a bit no. Mm. But still, it wasn't even a question. It was it wasn't even an option for me. The prospect of people knowing at that time would have been quite anxiety provoking. It's much much better to have glandular yeah. fever 
than uh, well, yeah, because absolutely, else. because it's um, I felt like I, I I was convinced I was the only one in the whole school who was experiencing this sort of stuff, and so I just didn't want to be a target. But it, it made it worse. It definitely made it worse being being having to hide it the whole time. And then particularly when I came back to school halfway through year nine, uh, that was sort of when I really experienced the worst of the suicidal ideation because I felt like it wasn't, well, I knew at that point it was never going to change. I thought I'd had every treatment I could have, had all the different diagnoses, um, had ECT when I was 16 and just nothing worked. So then I sort of went, well, there really is no point to the future. You know, I'm not going to be a, a vet. I'm not going to finish school. I'm never going to, you know, have a girlfriend. I'm going to live at my parents' house forever. There's just no quality of life anymore. And I, I don't see any evidence that it's ever going to change. And all I see is evidence that it's not going to change. Um, so what's the point? And I discuss this quite openly with my parents. Um, tell them that I didn't want to live anymore. Um, and I think the one thing that really held me back was uh, a bit of a preemptive guilt. I sort of wondered what would happen to my family uh, if I were to die. And that's what kept me grounded, but also quite angry at them. I felt like they were the ones who were keeping me here and I don't want to be here anymore because every day was just a pain and misery and there's no end to it. So it was, it was, I wasn't always the best son that I I wanted to be, but um, it was it was difficult. It was really really hard. So how did you uh, how did you get through that trying time? Because I'm I'm assuming you've got to live through or live with, if I can use that that terminology, mm. thoughts yeah. that are jumbled up. You know, thoughts that are sometimes sound like your voice, other times not. You know, mm. Ideas that you're the only person experiencing this, that's not going away, that's permanent. How do you live through that? Well, it wasn't a choice. Um, I was compliant in getting help because I didn't really have much of a choice. I just thought, on one hand, I sort of owe it to my parents because they've been so good to me and continue to be really good to me. So I just had to keep trying for their sake. Um, but also maybe part of me is like, even though I have very, very limited expectations of this working anymore, I was I was very optimistic for most of it. And then near the end, it's kind of like, this isn't going to happen. It's not going to get better. But I thought, well, oh, look, it's like buying a lottery ticket. Not that I do that, but like the idea like maybe maybe what have you got to lose kind of thing. Um, but I hated it because, because getting the treatment, uh, it came with side effects and all different kinds of things. So it was just sort of a sense of obligation really. Um, and I think it was, uh, I mean, at, at any, if it was up to me, I wouldn't have kept going. I wouldn't have gotten help. I would have given up, but my parents sort of made me. So the thing that kind of kept you going in actual fact came from guilt rather than an internal uh, strong desire to live. 
Yeah, definitely. And and I know, you know, I know from the research that that's not a helpful thing to impart on somebody else. You know, you don't say, oh, you're suicidal. Well, you should feel guilty about that. So that'll, you know, it's not going to make someone feel a lot better. But for me, that's that's my own thoughts and where I came from. And that's what, um, it, what helped, I suppose, keep me alive long enough until I could get the right diagnosis and get the right help. Um, but my, it's fascinating because my family... We- my apologies. It's fascinating because we we so commonly go out and make judgment of things, you know, and guilt is one of those that we go out and we judge as being negative, you know. Guilt is not good. Mm. When in actual mm. fact, functionally, um, you know, here's an example of it kept, it kept this kid alive. Um, you know, yeah. guilt can also be highly functional with regards to uh, keeping us in some type of societal order. You know, we, we, we can feel guilty if we go outside a particular norm. Um, and so it has lots of protective measures. Uh, obviously, it's not good to uh, necessarily feel guilty about all sorts of things, particularly things that are out of our mm. control. Uh, mm. but, but you're talking about, you know, a, a perfect scenario that um, the thing that kind of really you leaned on was how it might affect, you know, mum and dad and your family and the like. Mm. Um and you know that that obviously bond connection that you had. I'm assuming here. My apologies if I'm, uh, you know, Correct. rewriting the story incorrectly. Uh, but that bond went out and uh, became a protective factor through the virtue mm. of, of guilt. Um, and so it's quite, quite fascinating just to look at it. No, it is. I mean, it's certainly something that you couldn't prescribe to a client. <laughs> but but in my case. Uh, yeah, there was definitely uh, some accidental usefulness to it. Even though the experience itself was an unpleasant one, mm. uh, it did have the outcome of keeping me alive long enough to to get the right diagnosis. Um, and when I did get the right diagnosis, things improved uh, a great deal in a, in a pretty short period of time. It still took a number of years to to really sort of grow into myself and and I suppose make up for lost time in some way, but there, there was a huge improvement um, when I got the right diagnosis when I was um, about 17 or so. But before that, we'd actually uh, we experienced a, a great deal of trauma. I um, uh, so This was shortly after my 16th birthday, not long after I'd had ECT. Um, my elder brother, Christopher, took his own life. Um, we went to the same school, uh, I really looked up to him a lot and um, he was not quite 18 and he was struggling probably as much as I was, but was never um, was never too open about it. He was getting help and he was seeing a doctor and all that sort of stuff, but he was also uh, very popular, very charming, very athletic, sort of, you know, the real, uh, you know, footy jock kind of guy. And so... I think our understanding or the community's understanding of mental illness was that it sort of, it aligns with weakness or, um, you know, someone who looks like him and acts like him isn't someone who's mentally unwell. And I think for him, for Christopher, uh, part of that burden to carry was there being, it being so incongruous, the inside and the outside. 
Um, and I couldn't even exactly tell you why he took his own life. We still, there's still so many questions we don't have answers to. And um, but it's it's just something that profoundly affects a family. Um, and we didn't have any way of knowing how to deal with it. And this was at the exact same time I was suffering the worst of my suicidal ideation. There was this and yeah, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know how to grieve. Um, we just sort of isolated ourselves a lot, I think. Um, and I ended up in hospital uh, in a locked ward um, because of that, because I was so suicidal coming out of that whole experience myself. So you can imagine how much my whole family was going through in, in trying to deal with the grief, but also trying to keep me alive because... Um, I remember at that point, a counsellor asked me, what are my feelings toward my brother after he'd recently died? You know, was I sort of angry at him or disappointed or whatever? And I remember saying I was actually jealous because I wanted that to be me, you know. And, like, I don't know how you help a kid who's in that sort of that sort of way of thinking, that sort of situation. It's just it's so hard to find a way through it. And I think that... Uh, because I was able to be observed so closely um, in, not that I'd say a, a locked ward is a natural habitat, but I suppose outside of a, an office, a clinical sort of, you know, outpatient sort of situation, um, I was able, my treating doctor who I'd been seeing for about a year or so before that um, gave me the right diagnosis of having bipolar 2 um, and put me on the right medication. And for the first time in probably, I don't know, five four or five years, whatever it was, um, I actually felt okay again. I actually felt like I can live my own life and maybe even be happy and, and maybe have a future and maybe not be a vet but do something else. And um, it wasn't just a, a magic a magic pill that solved mm -hmm. all my problems, but um, it got me out of that mode of thinking everything is pointless and I'm never going to get better to, okay, this actually could, this could lead somewhere. And there's a way to maybe not get through it, but I think cope. Um, and I think because I was so emotionally battered around, I think I was really able to grieve uh, for a couple of years at least, um, which I suppose maybe again in that weird sort of roundabout way, there probably was some usefulness to that um, shutting down, but obviously also challenges to overcome within that too. But I did feel I, I got, I missed out a lot on the grieving process because I felt that other people had sort of gone through it more than I had. Um, but there's always space for it. I mean, it was just this weekend uh, that it was the anniversary of his death. And I always go up and visit my, my parents and spend the weekend with them. And I think every year that anniversary date has been different. And it started off with all his mates and us getting together and just drinking excessively. And, and it, it felt right the first few times and then it just sort of didn't. And then as time goes on, it becomes a bit more of just a private affair of just, you know, very close family. And, um, you know, we sort of have our own traditions and, and stuff around it. But I think what it comes back to is just sort of being together. Um, and I think that's 
that's the best way I've found to grieve. You know, there's not the stages of grief that you see in movies and stuff like that, as I always thought there was. But I think if I have learned anything out of it, it's that uh, I think that's the most useful way to, for my for my experience um, is to not try to go it alone, but to actually do it um, with people who you trust and care about. And I think it's the same approach you have to helping someone with a mental illness. Is it's not just, uh, you know, for, for your audience, it's not just a, you know, someone who's on the sort of front line helping people. It's not a one-to-one relationship. It's as many people in that little tribe as there can be. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an entire community. It's a whole school community. It's a society. It's, there's so many levels that we need to work on to treat this sort of stuff. And, mm. and yes, definitely a huge important part is the one-on-one stuff interfacing with the health services. Um, but there's a lot more that, that we often don't acknowledge that there's genuinely helpful as well. Something that, uh, in summarizing something that, that jumps out at me through everything that you've said today is almost like this recovery through togetherness that uh, now being a father yourself, kind of recognising how much mum and dad did this, you know, they must have worked very strongly together to be able to try and facilitate that, that there was plenty of support and, 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 and treatment and I'm not suggesting it was a smooth ride by any means. Um, uh, in actual fact, that, that sometimes what's so hard that, the fact that you have so much available um, or, or at least it's made available to you. Mm. But the key fact I'm hearing is having others with you. And I think the research does mm. say a lot about, you know, uh, primary predictors of mental wellbeing, mental health uh, is not necessarily, you know, a great psychologist or a you know, great psychiatrist or even medical team, often it's, it's those that you're closest to, a really strong supportive family, a really strong network mm. of friends, you know, community, mm. as you call it, um, mm. because it's more than just, it's more than just something one person needs to be, you know, treated mm. for, so to speak. It's, it's an actual fact, supporting a human being, in this okay. case, a, 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 you know, a 13-year-old kid to start with, um, mm. with just managing life um, and, and, you know, for him, yeah. a perfectionistic little boy um, that mm. kind of spirals out and becomes quite quite um, uh, caught up in some really hard pressures at that age. Um, mm. And then obviously, as, as you say, bipolar too. Um, uh, you know, this is, this is very, very serious stuff. Uh, Mm. And you, know, you, you did it as a family. Uh, that's what jumps out at me as well. At, yeah. at least, not sure if I've if I've captured no, that. No, that's so true. That's... I think that's that's a really really important way of looking at it. That the theme of togetherness. And honestly, it's it's a big part of what gives me a lot of satisfaction in life now. It's the fact that uh, I mean, yes, obviously, I'm still very close with my family, which is wonderful. Um, but it's also that I've found this this wonderful, wonderful person who I've married now and, and she's amazing. She's just wonderful. We get along so well and we've got a, a beautiful little kid now and it's, you know, I've got my own my own family. And and I think that that's just something that positions me to have a lot of 
a lot of life satisfaction. Um, mm. But then it's also finding stuff to do with my life that I find really meaningful as well, which is also another sort of pillar of, I think, what keeps me well and engaged in life. And yes, I certainly keep up with, you know, t- I tell you a very small maintenance dose of medication each day. Um, uh, haven't had a high or a low in, in many years and, and I feel in a really, really good place and I've got a lot to look forward to. Um, but I think what's, what has been a huge part of what's really kept me well also is, is working in, as you sort of tying it back to the beginning, is working in the advocacy space mm. and mm. now sort of making a bit of a go at um, trying to give to, to schools and communities and, and workplaces what I wish I had when I was going through all that. And it's just that idea that, I mean, I don't like inspiration. (laughs) It sounds really cynical. I I don't like sort of motivational speakers and stuff, but I guess what I, what I needed was someone who could actually not just knew, not just knew it from a textbook, but actually had sort of lived it. And I think I I had gained a lot of knowledge about mental health from yeah, I think hope was a big part of it. Absolutely. And it's the hardest thing to find when you really need it. Um, so what I try to do when I when I do my talks now in schools is I certainly lean on, uh, well, I mean, it's important, of course, to have the evidence base of, of knowledge to impart. But a big part of it is really kind of just sharing um, what I've experienced and, and having audiences relate to that in some way and just sort of um, not speaking for everyone, but kind of just sharing what it is that me and my family went through and how we managed to do that. And the idea is that it can open up a little bit of a conversation with the audience and ideally have them uh, continue that sort of conversation and really demystify a lot of these issues because, you know, we have, as you know, as you said, in Australia, we have a, a, obviously many ways it can be improved, but a good functioning system um, that helps a lot of people um, and I think one of the one of the things I come across is often that people uh, they know that those services or maybe they don't know they exist but there's a, there's a big barrier between an individual and seeking support or engaging with that support long term and a lot of it I think it, at least in school-aged people um, is the belief that it's probably not going to really work or that there's an embarrassment factor around it or fear of judgment um, or just the experience itself is, is unknown and unpleasant maybe to begin with. Um, and I think all these things, I try to just steer people a little bit into saying that, yeah, it's a bit like going to the gym, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel great to <laughs> let everything out there. Um, but if you sort of have someone who's a, a competent practitioner who you, you get along with and you can sort of express yourself with, um, then there's so much good that can come of that. Um, it can be life-changing. You, you raise a good point. It, 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 this really isn't, you know, something that works. I, I think it's something that we utilise that aids, that assists. Mm. There isn't anything that works. I wish there mm. was. Um it's it, it's very much process, and that's a really hard thing to hear when you're in such mm. pain, in such agony, mm. um, and mm. and that's that's the challenge of, of, of trying to trying to uh, you know get through a period, get through a time, at least see the next day, 
so that you mm. can make an assessment from from there and then maybe see the next day after that. Um, and it's often a bit of a confusing system. Like, you know, for people who work in this space, it all makes sense yeah. because we've sort of, we've gotten used to it. But for someone True. who has never done it before and the only experience you have with doctors is your GP and maybe some specialists, well, you, the expectation you have is you have an x-ray, you take some pills and then you're fine in a few weeks. So even just the expectation of what, what it even is that we're embarking upon, I think we lose a lot of people in the, in the process of help seeking just because the expectations are not communicated properly. So I think what I try to do is just sort of in that, those first stages of saying, what is this all going to look like? Um, and what are different people's journeys like? And ultimately, let's utilize the services that we've got and not just go, but actually really get as much out of it as we can. Um, and, and of course, focus on the peer support and the community level stuff too, because that certainly has a place. This advocacy of yours is really about let's do it together. Absolutely. That's exactly it. Um, yeah. It. No, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it's, it's so much harder to go it alone. And, and often we, we really just don't have to, even when we feel like we might, we might have to or should. Um, we, we very often don't. Nick, I'm mindful of time. So before we wrap it up, I just want to give you an opportunity uh, to let our, our listeners know, you know, how can they find out more about you? How can they engage with you if, they, if they'd like to? Yeah, great. And I'd love, I'd love to hear from them. I'm always happy to, um, to chat. So um, if you want to get in touch with me, um, I have a, a little organisation I, I founded called The Champions. And we say that we champion sharing to help improve mental health. Um, so you can find us at thechampions.org um, or on Instagram and Facebook, which is just thechampions.org. But if you go to the website, all the links are there at thechampions.org. I will make sure we link to this on, on our Better Thinking podcast as well. So Nick, really appreciate your time. I know that you've got a 13-week-old uh, 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 probably in the background <laughs> and, and, and you better, yeah, better put in your face share as well. <laughs> yeah, no, that's exactly right. Well, I really appreciate your time and, and to your audience for listening. Um, I think it's wonderful what you're doing. We just need um, so much more of this sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm really pleased to be a part of it. No, thank you, Nick. And keep spreading the word yourself. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe. Share it via social media. And tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.